Due to new federal laws governing tobacco and nicotine use, including the marketing and dissemination of product information, vaping weekly is now only intended for adults aged 21 years and over. If you live in a state or jurisdiction that allows for younger, this podcast is then for those over the age of 18 years. Listener discretion is advised. How you doing, everybody? It's Michael McGrady, and you're listening to Vivian Weekly. Uh, glad to be back. Sorry for the delay. Like I said, it's it's been busy. Uh, this is a very special episode. We have an interview with Alex Clark of Passat in the United States. And between myself, it's full length. Uh, we discussed the PMTA deadlines. Uh, and that's pretty much it for this episode. Uh, uh, we hope you enjoy the interview. As always, thanks again for tuning in to Vaping Weekly. You can learn more at vapingpost.com. And, you know, always follow us on uh, Spotify and uh, Google Podcasts. And you can also follow us on the website as well. So here's our interview. And thanks again for listening. Hi, everyone. As you know, it's Michael McGrady. I'm happy to have in the studio a Mr. Alex Clark, uh, the CEO of CASA. Uh, this is Alex Clark, the CEO of the Consumer Advocates for Smoke-Free Alternatives Association. Um, so as we discussed kind of in my email really quick, uh, I just wanted to see what CASA uh, had to say about um, you know, the upcoming September 9th uh, PMTA deadline. We are seeing a lot of uh, um, upcoming news and all that uh, regarding the importance of the, the, the approval, not, I mean, not the approval, the uh, deadline. At, uh, and uh, I just want to see what Casa what has to say, especially because this is going to be pretty dramatic. We're going to see a large exodus of products off the market, etc. Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, you know, several of the things that we warned about in 2014 and, and even leading it, uh, up to the, the comment period on the FDA tobacco deeming rule, mm-hmm. um, lots of these things are coming true. Uh, we've been seeing for years now, um, you know, smaller manufacturers have sort of been pressured to leave the market because of the uncertainty of, of, of the regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people, I think, just sort of uh, getting sick of all of this and, and deciding to go another career path um, just to sort of, you know, make sure they can keep putting food on the table for their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think probably the, the, the most obvious thing that we warned about back in 2014 was that the, the entire marketplace is about to be handed over to uh, only the largest firms who can afford to go through the approvals process. Uh, and of course, now we, we have already seen that. Those are the companies that have gotten their applications in first. Um, there are a few notable, uh, quote unquote, independent companies, uh, or maybe some smaller names that people aren't so familiar with that have also had their applications uh, uh, accepted for substantive review. But for the most part, uh, this is tragically playing out the way that, that we had predicted years ago. So, you know, we're seeing Jewel, we're seeing Altria, we're seeing RJ Reynolds Vapor, we're seeing, you know, basically the usual suspects, uh, big tobacco companies, uh, seeing that there's really no future for a combustible product. So they're trying to, you know, diversify into a smoke free product. 
which you know in hindsight isn't a bad thing but you know it's still kind of it, it, it still destroys the actual people the actual companies that made the industry what it is today and I think that um, when we have to consider you know kind of like a bitter truth uh, there's also a bitter sweetness that we also have to admit however I think more or less we're seeing more harm than any positive things of, you know, even some type of smoke-free vapor product still remaining on the market after the PMTA deadline. You know, most vapors do not use, you know, a closed jewel to quit smoking. Most use an open mod and, a, you know, liquid that is produced by their local shop. So we're going to see a lot of small businesses uh, suffering and closing and you know, this could be catastrophic for an economy that's already, you know, uh, struggling with COVID-19. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's no doubt. And, and I know that, uh, you know, we've seen people from the that sort of small independent side of the industry speaking up lately. Uh, well, not, not just recently. They've been talking about this for years, but uh, there seems to be a bit more attention to what they're saying now, which is that uh, you know, there's well over 100,000 people that are going to be affected by this industry being shut down. Um, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry here. Uh, that's, you know, that's revenue for states, for counties, for cities. And of course, it's paychecks for families that then spend that money in their communities. So, um, you know, like any other big industry being being shut down or crippled by regulation, um, you know, this has a ripple effect throughout the economy. And it's just compounded by all all of the challenges that we're facing with with this pandemic. Um, so, you know, without a doubt, that the 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 effects of this are going to be much bigger than I think people might immediately see. You know, communities might see an empty storefront, but there's a family behind that. You couldn't have said that better when we consider the impacts of um, the actual industry, as you said. Um, and in addition to that, there's more than one family behind that. I know in my experience with the vape shops, um, it's multiple families. Um, it's people who are employed, people who work for them, the indirect uh, dependence of those employees and the trickle-down effect a closure like that would have. Some of the other, uh, probably the most significant unseen or underreported consequences of uh, enforcing the, the pre-market tobacco approval deadline um, will be, you know, if recent history is a guide, uh, it, it means potentially millions of people seeking out uh, low-risk vapor products on an informal market. Um, and this, you know, in the age of COVID-19, we're talking about uh, informal retailers who may not be taking the proper precautions requiring customers to wear masks or providing some sort of curbside pickup. Um, you know, these are these are essentially retailers who have uh, multiple contact points with with average consumers uh, every day, but they themselves may not be in a position to take proper precautions. Um, you know, when you're buying products out of the trunk of a car, um, you're not dealing with someone who is uh, either capable or interested in, in following, uh, you know, disease prevention guidelines. Uh, and, uh, you know, despite the fact that I think most people are take a lot of people are taking this, this whole uh, COVID-19 situation very seriously, um, it's a lot more uh, 
possible to regulate a, a, a storefront than it is somebody, you know, dealing a product to you in, in a parking lot. Um, so, you know, we may not have the attention to detail here as a, as a country uh, to track and trace the spread of a disease within informal markets. Um, but I, I think that that is also a, a significant risk that now, uh, you know, people who have uh, made the decision to improve their health, now they are faced with this additional risk of, of potentially contracting COVID-19 just to buy the products that are keeping them away from cigarettes. Um, I think it's also important to note, you know, whenever we talk about an underground market or, you know, informal manufacturers, uh, there is this tendency, I think, to assume that the products coming out of these places are going to be uh, adulterated or they're manufactured in a way that's irresponsible, unsanitary, and that in turn is putting people at risk. Um, it's it, it's worth noting that that DIYing, doing it yourself, making these products at home, is actually pretty easy, and people have been doing this for years. In fact, I mean, this is this is how the industry got started: was people sort of reverse engineering devices and liquids and and customizing them to what they they wanted. Um, so DIY is nothing new in the vapor community. Um, but it, it's the risk is when you have people scaling up these operations and they are perhaps not adopting uh, good manufacturing practices or sanitation protocols uh, in, in what is essentially a much larger facility than, than they were previously using, perhaps in their basement or bathroom or kitchen. Um, and so, uh, you know, there is no oversight in, in these manufacturing facilities, if you will. Uh, and, and there's just a lot more potential for contamination or something like that. Um, but the, using inferior products or dangerous chemicals, um, the risk is not not as heavy, not as great as you would find in, in say, the illicit drug market, um, where, for example, cutting agents that have been used for THC sicken thousands of people. Um, there, there, there really is no cost-saving motivation for people to use uh, products like that in order to make nicotine vapor products. Um, so while the risk of a, of a nicotine vaping black market is uh, probably a lot lower than than a uh, you know an under, underground market for other other drugs, um, combining that with the threat of contracting a, a highly contagious virus, uh, and of course all of the things that can go wrong in the manufacturing process, to be perfectly blunt about it, uh, forcing all of these people to buy these products in that way is grossly irresponsible. And uh, it is it is actually amazing to me that after you know our country's experience with alcohol prohibition, this ongoing conversation we're having about drug prohibition and um, you know disproportionately targeting certain communities with drug crimes. That, that we would in 2020 be having a, a conversation about adding new drug crimes and, uh, you know, potentially forcing people to participate in a dangerous informal economy. You couldn't be more right, Alex. Uh, thanks again for, you know, discussing, you know, the combined concerns related to the September 9th PMTA deadline, not to mention this coming during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, a lot of 
a lot of risk, a lot of things to consider. And I appreciate uh, you coming on the show. And, you know, I think our listeners appreciate it too, whether they're vapors, consumers, or just observers of the industry and, uh, you know, shop owners at that. So again, ladies and gentlemen, Alex Clark, uh, president of Kazaa in the United States. I appreciate you coming on again, as I said. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode of Vaping Weekly uh, Returns. That will be in a few weeks, as I said. We're trying to keep it very, very steady with the pipeline. And, you know, we'll have an after factor. We'll have an aftermath report related to COVID-19 and the September 9th uh, deadline at PMTA. Uh, again, uh, thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Michael McGrady, the English edition columnist uh, for VapingPost.com, uh, where I cover public policy, not to mention uh, your host of Vaping Weekly. Uh, Vaping Weekly was created by myself and hosted hosted by myself, but also uh, produced in collaboration with VapingPost.com with technical assistance from Perry Creations in London, Colorado. We are independent of Big Tobacco. Thank you.